So this is a viewer question that I am actually submitting. And the only reason I'm doing that, I know that might be cheating, but I'm doing it because this is a question that I have been asked quite a few times on social media or in emails or some other just random form of communication over the years of teaching scripture. Does the Bible actually condemn Christmas trees? Now, some people are probably like, wait, what? Why would the Bible condemn Christmas trees? I don't even know what you're talking about. But astute readers of the Old Testament, which let's face it, there could always stand to be more of among professing Christians, will come across a passage in Jeremiah, or they'll hear from some anti-Christmas, anti-holiday, self-professing believer in scripture that actually it's pagan and the Bible condemns it. And here, let me show you. And they'll turn to Jeremiah chapter 10. So I just wanted to do a video basically to look at Jeremiah chapter 10 very quick. This isn't going to be long. It's not going to be super in-depth. But I just want to show what Jeremiah 10 is actually talking about. And then you can judge for yourself whether it's actually talking about Christmas trees or anything that are remotely like Christmas trees. So here we have the text of Jeremiah 10. We have the Hebrew here, we have the NIV here, and we have the NRSV UE, the updated NRSV over on this side. Now, Jeremiah, just to give a tiny bit of context, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He was there at what was basically the fall of Jerusalem, the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah, and the exile to Babylon. Over the years, Israel had devolved into total syncretism, and they had done what the number one commandment was not to do, which is they had followed other gods. And so Jeremiah, that's the main thrust of his message, describing what it is now going to be like because they have completely, utterly, and irrevocably rejected the covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. And so Jeremiah, it's one of the longest books in the Old Testament. But what we're going to see in chapter 10 is this message that God has for the people of Israel. And just real quick, if we back up to chapter 9, verse 25, I'll just read NIV because it reads the easiest in English. Jeremiah 9, 25 the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who are circumcised only in the flesh, meaning their covenant members, their ethnically Jewish, Israelite, Hebrew, but only in the flesh, not in terms of their actual heart, faithfulness, covenant obedience to God, to the Lord. So verse 26, Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and all who live in the wilderness in distant places. So this is kind of everybody in Israel's vicinity. And Judah is stuck right in there. I mean, the southern kingdom of Judah, they're stuck right in there between the Egyptians, the Edomites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and for good measure, everybody else. So in other words, God's not going to show partiality in his judgment. He will judge evildoers. He will judge wickedness. Doesn't matter what your parents' faith was. Doesn't matter even if you outwardly are bearing the mark of covenant obedience, which is circumcision. God says, for all these nations are really uncircumcised. And look at that. He's lumping Judah in. He's lumping his the people of Israel are being lumped in with all the other uncircumcised nations, meaning those outside of the covenant. And even the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. That's the key. This is what Deuteronomy, what Moses wanted his people to be, was circumcise your hearts, not just your bodies. Don't just keep the covenant in your genealogy. 
keep the covenant in your daily life. And Israel had failed to do that repeatedly over and over. And finally, this is the tail end of Israel's existence before they are, in the words of Deuteronomy, vomited out of the land. In other words, taken into captivity by the Babylonians. So then Jeremiah 10 picks up, hear what the Lord says to you, people of Israel. So this is a message to God's people from God, basically telling them why they are going to be experiencing and in the midst of experiencing his judgment. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations. And this word here, you can see it in Hebrew, hagoyim. Hagoyim, this is the word for Gentiles. This is the word specifically for the nations as opposed to God's people. So don't learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the heavens though the nations are terrified by them. What's this about? Well, he said they, they were surrounded by nations like Egypt, like Babylon. These were nations that were super into astrology. Babylonians kind of charted their lives and, and lived according to what they believed were signs and omens in the heavens. In fact, most of the ancient peoples did this. Astrology was huge in pretty much every ancient culture, at least every ancient civilization. There developed some way of reading the heavens, looking to the sun, the moon, the stars. And God had said at the beginning of Genesis, the sun, the moon, the stars, they're just there for telling times and seasons, festivals. They're just there to give light on the day and the night. And so for Israel, they were just to be elements of creation. But to the nations, the Goyim, they were ways of kind of ferreting out what the gods were up to. And so God's saying, don't learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the heavens, though the nations are terrified by them. Verse three, for the practices of peoples are worthless. And this is a word that's found everywhere in Ecclesiastes. It's this word hevel. And hevel, there's no good way to translate it. Uh, literally, it means vapor. But it's sometimes translated as emptiness or vanity or futility, uselessness. But this is the word. And God's saying the practices of the peoples, all of the divination, the astrology, worthless. Hevel. It's just, it's a vapor and it's gone. And then he's going to give another example. So we've already talked about astrology, huge among the Babylonians. Now he's going to give another example of these practices of the Goyim, the Gentiles. They cut a tree out of the forest and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. And I believe the King James here says they deck it with silver and gold. And let's actually switch this to the King James so you can get a better idea. Look how King James says it. For the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers that it move not. So people are like, boom, Christmas tree, pagan. God judged Israel for doing stuff like this. So do not put up a Christmas tree in your house. It's secret paganism that's crept into the church. Now, we'll talk a minute about Christmas trees in particular and whether or not they are pagan in origin. But because of the King James, the way they've worded it, cutteth a tree out of the forest with an axe. They deck it, deck the halls with boughs of holly, bring trees outside into the house. I mean, this just sounds like if you don't know the context of Jeremiah, you don't know anything about scripture, you read this and you go, oh, that sounds like it's talking about Christmas. But look what he's saying. They cut a tree out of the forest and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel or carving knife. 
It's this Hebrew word, ma'atzad. So a craftsman takes a tree from the forest and then crafts it, works it, cuts it, carves it with his carving implement. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it will not totter. They're talking about making an idol. The cra- it's talking about a craftsman literally bringing a piece of lumber, carving it in the shape of the deity, and fastening it so it doesn't tip over. And then the Hebrew literally says, katomer, like a scarecrow of the mikshah, the cucumber field or cucumber garden, like a scarecrow you'd put in a garden to keep away the birds, are they, hema, lo yadaberu, they do not speak. And they must be carried. They must be born. It's this verb, nasa, to lift or to carry or to bear. They must be carried for lo yitzadu. They do not walk. They have to be carried around. They can't walk. And so, al tira'u mahem, do not be afraid. Do not fear them. Kilo yareu, they can't do any harm. They can't do any bad. They can't do anything. Vagem hetev, and also good there is not in them. So they can't do anything for harm. They can't do anything for good. Why? Because they're worthless. They, they're nothing. They're idols. That's what this is talking about. Jeremiah 10 is not talking about Christmas trees. It's talking about idols, carved deities that the ancient peoples worshipped. And so God goes on to say, in contrast, no one is like you, Lord. You are great. Your name is mighty in power. Who should not fear you, kings of the nations? This is your due among all the wise leaders of the nations and in all their kingdoms. There's no one like you. They are all senseless and foolish. They're taught by worthless wooden idols. And literally in Hebrew, Havalim eats who? Havalim, that's the plural of hevel. Feudal, worthless, vapor, wood. Eats, that's the word for tree or wood. So wooden worthlessness. Even though, ironically, they're made from hammered silver that's brought from Tarshish and gold from Mufaz, what the craftsmen and the goldsmith have made and then dressed in blue and purple, all made by skilled workers. They're creating this deity, this idol, and and putting expensive gold and silver and fine clothes on this idol. All the while, verse 10, but the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal king. When he's angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath. Verse 11, tell them this, these gods who did not make the heavens and the earth, and these idols, these worthless things, will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. But in contrast, and then we'll go on to talk about God who did create everything. And it'll sort of recap the creation account of Genesis. And it'll contrast God with the local Canaanite deities like Baal, who are seen as having control over the storm. Verse 13, when he thunders, the waters in heavens roar. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with rain and brings out wind from his storehouses. This is imagery that would denote Baal. This is straight up Canaanite concepts, how they viewed Baal and what Baal did literally from his storehouse in the heavens, pouring out his rains, throwing down his thunderbolts. I mean, if you read the Ugaritic Baal myth, he is called the rider on the clouds. And so this section concludes, everyone is senseless and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. The images he makes are a fraud. They have no breath in them. They are worthless. There's the word again, hevel. 
the objects of mockery, when their judgment comes, they will perish. But he who is the portion of Jacob, meaning God himself, is not like all these, for he is the maker of all things. He wasn't made by human hands, like the idols of the nations. He was the one who made human hands to begin with, including Israel, the people of his inheritance. Yahweh Savaoth, the Lord Almighty, is his name. But because they have failed, utterly failed to realize that, verse 17, gather up your belongings to leave the land, you who live under siege, that's the people of Jerusalem, for this is what the Lord says, at this time I will hurl out those who live in this land, that's Israel, I will bring distress on them so they may be captured by the Babylonians. In the book of Jeremiah, sometimes it's hard to tell who is speaking, whether it's God or Jeremiah, in terms of the pathos and, and, the, and the woe and the just lamenting of what's happened to his people. The woe to me because of my injury, my wound is incurable. Yet I said to myself, this is my sickness, I must endure it. My tent is destroyed, all its ropes are snapped. My children are gone from me and are no more. No one is left now to pitch my tent or to set up my shelter the shepherds are senseless and do not inquire of the Lord, so they do not prosper and all their flock is scattered. This is imagery of sort of like a Bedouin community, uh, a herding pastoral community being scattered, being taken into captivity, their tent being torn down, the ropes being snapped. This is poetic theological prophetic image of the coming exile. Listen, the report is coming, a great commotion from the land of the north. That's where the Babylonians would come from. It will make the towns of Judah desolate, a haunt of jackals. So all of that by way of just giving context, what is Jeremiah talking about in this practices of the people, cut down a tree out of the forest? Is it talking about Christmas trees? It's talking about making idols. The IVP Old Testament Bible background commentary that John Walton edited on this chapter, chapter 10, verse 5, it gives the background. It says, ancient Near East beliefs about and treatment of idols. That's what's being talked about. Idols came in a variety of shapes and sizes in the ancient Near East. They were typically carved of wood and overlaid with hammered out sheets of silver or gold. Basically human in appearance, except those from Egypt, which combined human and animal characteristics. They had distinctive, even formalized poses, clothing, and hairstyles. Images of deity in the ancient Near East were where the deity became present in a special way to the extent that the cult statue became the god when the god so favored his worshipers, even though it was not the only manifestation of the god. Rituals were performed to bring the god to life in its idol. To the ancient Near East worshiper, the idol was not the deity, but the deity was thought to inhabit the image and manifest its presence and will through the image. Archaeologists have found very few of the life-size images that the text described, but there are renderings of them that allow accurate knowledge of details. The images of deities in Mesopotamia were fed, dressed, and even washed daily. Food sacrifices were brought to the deity on a daily basis and were no doubt eaten by the temple technicians. Other attendants were required to dress and undress the statue, and still others were employed to wash the statue and transport it in times of celebration. So, what does any of this have to do with Christmas trees? Nothing. They're talking about idols. They're talking about carved images that would be worshipped. So, the only way that this would apply to Christmas trees is if 
people who put up Christmas trees believed that those trees were a deity, worshipped the deity by bowing down or offering food offerings to the Christmas trees, or doing any other cultic practice that's associated with ancient idols. See, you can see real idolatry. You can go all throughout the world. I frequently go to India. It's a Hindu nation. You can't pass a street corner without seeing an idol, a literal idol. And what do Hindu worshipers do? They go into the temple. They offer sacrifices to the God. They will leave a little bit of milk, maybe some flowers, maybe some money. You see this in various East Asian and Buddhist cultures as well. You see it in places where they believe in spirits and or the ancestors and building shrines and offering something. It's just this is sort of ingrained in to human psyche. And what God is telling his people, Israel, is you're not to be like the other nations in how they worship their gods. You are the people of Yahweh, the people of the covenant. What Jeremiah is saying is no different than what the psalmists say, that what Isaiah says, when it comes to idols, they're crap. Literally, they are crap. They use the word. The Hebrew word for dung is a wordplay used to denote idols in the Hebrew Bible, in places like Deuteronomy, in places like Ezekiel. We have a video here on the channel. I'll link it in the description below where we do a deep dive on idols in the ancient world. So if you want to know what Jeremiah 10 is actually talking about, like at the level of detail, check out that video. But it's not talking about Christmas trees at all. And I asked a friend of mine, Dr. Matthew Higdon, who's a professor of history, and one of his specialties is history of religious observance and religious celebration. And I asked him, I said, hey, do you have anything that you can send me that's reputable, that clears up some of the myths, the urban legends about Christmas trees, because you hear all the time they're pagan, that people worship this deity and, and the Yule log has fertility connotations and the tree is a pagan symbol of fertility and on and on. And he said, yeah, actually, here's a couple of resources that if you want to look into, they give more detail. And so I wanted to share a little bit of what he sent that will sort of give you more background. You can judge for yourselves to what degree are these pagan. So the Encyclopedia Britannica has an entry on Christmas tree, holiday decoration. I'll link it in the description below. But after describing what a Christmas tree is, it notes this. Look what they say. The use of evergreen trees, wreaths, and garlands to symbolize eternal life was a custom of the ancient Egyptians, Chinese, and Hebrews. So various cultures had various symbolism surrounding trees. Tree worship was common among the pagan Europeans and survived their conversion to Christianity in the Scandinavian customs of decorating the house and the barn with evergreens at the new year to scare away the devil and of setting up a tree for the birds during Christmas time. It survived further in the custom, also observed in Germany, of placing a Yule tree at an entrance or inside the house during the midwinter holidays. So there were various pagan customs that had various meaning, vestiges of which remain in different cultural practices. We talked about this in the video here about Halloween, and we looked at how there are elements of pagan culture even in the names of the days of the week that we use. Wednesday, that's Odin's day. Thursday, Thor's day. Friday, Frigga's day. Saturday was Saturn's day. So there are all kinds of customs that if you trace them far enough back, they probably have some roots in non-Judeo-Christian practices. But the question is, the things that you're doing, what do they actually mean when you're doing them. And so the article goes on to note, the modern Christmas tree, though, originated in Western Germany. 
the main prop of a popular medieval play about Adam and Eve was a paradise tree, a fir tree hung with apples that represented the Garden of Eden. The Germans set up a paradise tree in their homes on December 24th, the religious feast day of Adam and Eve. They hung wafers on it, symbolizing the Eucharistic host. That's the communion wafer, the Christian sign of redemption. In a later tradition, the wafers were replaced by cookies of various shapes. Candles, symbolic of Christ as the light of the world, were often added. In the same room was the Christmas pyramid, a triangular construction of wood that had shelves to hold Christmas figurines and was decorated with evergreens, candles, and a star. By the 16th century, the Christmas pyramid and the paradise tree had merged, becoming the Christmas tree. Now, I'm not a historian, and I know that there are other historians who say, no, it actually probably arose from another region of Western Europe, or it may or may not have been connected with the Adam and Eve plays and, and symbolizing the tree of life. The point is, regardless of how it has trickled down to us, for most Christians who celebrate the birth of Jesus. And we all know Jesus's actual birthday wasn't December 25th, but the reason that it was celebrated was based on a very complicated calculation that his death and his birth would have been exactly timed in a certain way. And that's not the purpose of this video. Maybe we'll do one in the future about why Christians celebrate Jesus's birthday on December 25th, even though we know that that's not when he was actually born now. Regardless, for most people, what the Christmas tree symbolizes is the Christmas holiday. Jesus as the light of the world, gathering with family and celebrating, giving gifts like the wise men gave to baby Jesus. Does it have echoes and vestiges of the different cultures into which the gospel has spread all over the world? Yeah. I mean, if people had come from the Caribbean to settle America instead of Northern Europe to settle America, probably would be a palm tree instead of a fir tree. But regardless of how you think the Christmas tree came about as a symbol, regardless of whether you even think Christians should celebrate Christmas on December 25th, or whether you think it should celebrate Christmas at all, regardless of any of that, what should be clear is that Jeremiah 10 has nothing to do with Christmas trees and everything to do with worshiping gods other than the Father of Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. That's what it all boils down to. So if you want to celebrate Christmas, if you want to put up a Christmas tree, as long as you're not attempting any cult practices or magic rituals or incantations, you're not doing anything that Jeremiah 10 is talking about. The bigger danger, which we do talk about in our video here on idolatry that I mentioned a little earlier, the biggest danger is the consumerism and the greed that often accompanies Christmas. Because as we show in that video, greed is idolatry. And you can make the case that there's a whole lot of greed wrapped up in many popular expressions and celebrations of Christmas. But that's a whole other discussion, and that's why that video is on the channel for you to check out. So that's all for now. As we enter into the season of Advent, I hope this helps clear up some things. If you have somebody at Thanksgiving who says, well, you know, Christmas trees are forbidden in the Bible and they turn to Jeremiah 10, feel free to send them this video and maybe at least when it comes to the biblical interpretation part, it'll clear up some of their misconceptions. That's all for now. See you back here next time at Disciple Dojo. As always, keep training.